Hello and welcome to episode three of The East Meets the West. I'm your host, Rigor, and today I am joined by award-winning podcaster Patsy the Angry Nerd. How are you doing today, Patsy? Oh, I'm doing, uh, I'm doing pretty well. We've got some, uh, some nice weather. You know, I, I love 75-degree days in, uh, in the middle of November. That's, that's always awesome. <laughs> Isn't that great? I love it. It's been so good. Yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> it's weird. I helped my brothers move a couple weeks ago. Uh, the day that it snowed, we got we got about six seven inches of snow, and we had to uh, move across the city. And uh, oh my god! Every day the next week, it was uh, seventy degrees plus. So uh, that's I mean that's just New England. That's just how that goes. <laughs> Figures. Yeah, that day we only got like a light, uh, not even a dusting. It didn't stick at all. I saw a few flakes coming down, and that was about it. But I guess you guys got hammered down in Massachusetts. Oh yeah, yeah. When I when I got up in the morning, it was I was like, all right, it's not too bad, you know. And uh, brought my wife to work because uh, her car isn't great in the snow, and I'm like, eh, I'm up already. I'll I'll bring you to work. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was it was interesting. Like it started coming down heavy. Yeah, the weather's so confusing with the warm air. It's like the leaves are actually jumping back up into the trees. Yeah. So <laughs> it's killing my my uh my allergies. Like Oh my god, yeah. Playing back and forth and I keep seeing all these bugs coming back and forth and it's like, oh, just all the bugs should just go away and then I know. Or just be seventy degrees all year. What's wrong with that? Is that too much to ask? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, right. <laughs> Okay, so today's films are The Invincible Shaolin from 1978 by the Shaw Brothers and Death Rides a Horse from 1967 starring Lee Van Cleef. So for those of you who don't know, Spaghetti Westerns are Western movies that are made in Italy from the 1960s to the 1980s. And they are much darker and grittier than American Westerns, not always with happy endings. The Shaw Brothers is a production company from Hong Kong, and they were made famous worldwide with their amazing, insane martial arts films, also from the 60s to the 80s. And they're still active today, actually. So, Pat, can you tell us your experiences uh, in the past with Spaghetti Westerns and or Shaw Brothers movies? Well, I can tell you it'll take a, a real it'll be real quick because uh, I really didn't have any. Um, <laughs> like I might have seen some of this stuff like on TV and passing, but you know, as a kid, Westerns weren't really my thing. And, uh, if I was going to watch something poorly dubbed, it was going to be a Godzilla f film. Uh, <laughs> there you go. I mean, cause even some of the, the, the dialogue in the spaghetti Westerns here in death rides a horse was, uh, was poorly dubbed. Um, yeah, but yeah, it was, it was an interesting experience, you know, watching this now at, you know, nearly 40 and never, having seen any of these, uh, in the past, but I mean, we'll get into it, but, um, right. Right. Yeah. I was just curious. So, so this was the first time seeing both movies, uh, was for this podcast. Correct. For you. Okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, I kind of, I grew up on Westerns. I grew up particularly on American Westerns, but I remembered seeing spaghetti Westerns. I, I knew as a kid, there was a difference and I just didn't at the time know what it was. And, um, of course, we always had, growing up, there was like a Kung Fu theater on Channel 68 in Boston. And um, so I saw a lot of these films. But, again, the Shaw Brothers is just one company among many in China. So there's, there were a ton of martial arts films that came out. So the martial arts films and 
the spaghetti westerns all hit the theaters in America, particularly the grindhouse theaters. And um, one thing, speaking of grindhouse, that I wanted to bring up is that you and I both watched the films on Amazon Prime, and the version of the um, Death Rides a Horse was terrible. I, I have a DVD of it, and it was the same exact quality. And so I felt really bad. I'm like watching it and we're getting down to the podcast and I'm like, oh man, it's like a real shitty quality film for you to watch. So I was curious what your what your experience was with that because I, I kind of just had to pretend I was in a grindhouse theater watching a shitty copy of a film. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much what I went with. It's just um, watching it like, you know, it was 1967, you know, watching it like it was, you know, something that you were seeing for the first time in one of these uh one of these types of theaters uh, i thought it helped the experience to be honest because um, if i'm watching yep, something yeah. from 1967 it doesn't have to be you know this pristine you know super polished uh film you know right. if it's kind of dingy and grimy um especially that opening opening scene opening 10 15 minutes um i think it worked really well with uh, the overall aesthetic. I have to agree with that. I, I definitely thought that that worked. I was really trying to get into it, and that really... It almost was like a horror movie with the thunder and lightning and the rain and all that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's... You know, that was one of the things I was thinking about, you know, watching the, the rain and the thunder and everything, and it's like... It's like, man, they... You know, I was thinking about how they would do those effects, you know, back in 1967 compared to the massive sets that they do now and... You know, right. <laughs> you know, it gives you more of an appreciation for, uh, you know, what the actors had to go through, you know, 50 years ago than you know, what they have to go through now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, it was interesting, too, though, if it's such a stark difference between that and then the um, uh, Invincible Shaolin, which was was a pristine widescreen copy and something that probably would have looked shitty on the screens when it was in the grindhouses, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely could tell that the, the aspect ratio was, was weird. Like, there was one shot where they were kind of panning from left to right, and it was almost like the, 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 the picture on the film was too big to be shown on the screen, and, like, it had this really, like, janky... Uh, transition from left to right. It was almost like the image itself was trying to reformat on the fly so it would fit on the screen correctly. Right, right. Interesting, but, you know, again... In in which film? um, uh, Invincible Shaolin. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was too bad (laughs) that that um, uh, Death Rides a Horse was not widescreen because that could have really, really been helped with a widescreen version there. So on this show, we are on a journey of exploration about the stuff that we've just been talking about. We're going to learn about both types of filmmaking, the spaghetti westerns, which is a genre of movies, whereas the Shaw Brothers was a company that specialized in one particular genre, which was the martial arts films, although they did make tons of other movies that just didn't fall into that category. But one of the great things about the Shaw Brothers films, and particularly producer Run Run Shaw, was their diasporic approach, and that is the spreading of their culture. They wanted people to see movies that reflected honor and loyalty and sometimes vengeance. And those three things we also have in common in Spaghetti Westerns. And 
um, Spaghetti Westerns have a lot of similarities with the Shaw Brothers films, as we've kind of discussed in the last two episodes, and we'll start, to, we'll continue to get into as we move along in these shows. Um, one of the big things was, and I, I'm sure, Pat, this was obvious to you, the sound in both movies, generally speaking, for Spaghetti Westerns and Shaw Brothers, they never recorded sound when they were shooting the movie. They always dubbed in the voices later on, whether it was in you know the original language or the dubbing and the sound effects and everything. And I think sometimes that can work to its, to its advantage and sometimes to a disadvantage. But um, one of the com- things in common with both of these films today is the theme of vengeance. So first up, we're going to talk about uh, Invincible Shaolin. Uh, so Pat, <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to ask you to bear with me here because sometimes these films get really confusing with the actors who often go by different names, the characters that have different names. Can I ask, when you watched it, did you happen to put the, even it was even though it was in, in English, did you happen to put the subtitles on? Uh, no, I didn't. Because uh, I was like, oh, okay. what, what do we, like, because I was waiting to see what it was first. And when I saw right. that, you know, like they would have the translations come up and then everybody started speaking, I was like, okay, I will, uh, I'll just go with this, with, uh, you know, the dubs. Uh, I, I watched it with the subtitles as well as being in English because I found in the past, and I probably should have told you this ahead of time, a lot of times they'll say a character's name on the screen and it'll, they'll say it one way and it will be a different way in the subtitling. Thankfully, that didn't happen this time around. <laughs> Everything was pretty accurate to what they were saying. But it, these movies, for some reason, there's something, I don't know, lost in the translation somewhere along the way and it gets really confusing. And if you go to the Hong Kong movie database and you look these films up and you you pick a particular actor, he's got like seven or eight other names that he goes by under it. So it can it can make things really confusing, especially when it's in a different language. And, you know, it's, it's bad enough trying to remember English names. Then you've got to remember all these Chinese names. So I'm going to get into this movie right now. And so bear with me, Pat, as I, um, as I sort of break it down uh, with a brief synopsis. And then I'll talk a little bit about the actors and then we'll dive into the film, okay? Okay, that sounds like a plan. All right, cool. So this is another film produced by Run Run Shaw, and uh, it was directed by the great Chang Che. And we're not going to talk about him very much right now. Um, We are going to try and do a special show about him because he's directed hundreds of these movies. And his his we'll talk about his directing in the film, but not about his career today. Since director Chang Che introduced the techniques of the Hongs in the great epic Heroes Two. With the tiger vanquishing boxing and the tiger and crane styles, Kung Fu films have entered a new era with detailed Kung Fu practice and complex maneuvers. All based on historical facts, these are authentic martial arts, real fights. And now, Cheng Chi's new boxing epic. Invincible Shaolin, a new breakthrough. The deadly matter style is depicted in detail. The most fantastic fighting ever seen on the screen. Starring Lo Bang, who's practiced the matter style for years. Sees a scaly anteater.
grinding mill. Muscle building technique. Four fists. Reversible hammer. Monkey step. Nine step. The breathing exercise. The three step arrow. Romance, Herculean strength. Combined with a genuine matter skill. The Yun Chun style. Wei Pai starts his practice at the post. The different maneuvers. Arms against the post. All aimed at countering the enemy's skill. Four chewies, fishtail pole. Yang Sheng, butterfly pole. Lu Feng's palm. And Sun Tian's kick. All these extraordinary skills depicted in this masterpiece of Kung Fu epic. Invincible Shaolin. So here's the plot synopsis. We've got the the evil general Pu or Zhu, who was played by Wang Lung Wei, or uh, if you look it up online, he's also Lung Wei Wang. So you have to pick which one you want to go with. He comes up with a brilliant plan to rid the Xing Empire once and for all of the Shaolin masters. Apparently, Shaolin Kung Fu, or Kung Fu of any kind, is severely restricted under their law. The general invites three northern Shaolin experts to his mansion and has them fight in a contest against three novice southern Shaolin men who are already teachers at his mansion. If the three northerners win, then they'll be the teachers for the royal army. By royal decree, Shaolin was required to supply experts to teach the Xing troops martial arts, even though Shaolin training was not to be given to the average citizen. The northern Shaolin experts easily and decisively win against the southern Shaolin men. After the contest, the general visits the southern Shaolin men in their quarters later that night and secretly kills them with his hands, with his bare hands. He then has his subordinate go to the south Shaolin, placing the blame squarely on the northerners. The southern teacher of the dead disciples, Mai Qi, played by Shen Chan, is deceived into believing that the northern experts killed his disciples. This would begin an internal conflict between both north and south Shaolin schools. The southern teacher sends three more students, one of which is his son, to avenge the first three. Sadly, his son and one of the other students are accidentally killed by the northerners, and the third one returns with a broken arm and ultimately kills himself out of guilt. 
things escalate as Mai Key disperses his students temporarily, warning them that if they go seeking trouble, they will be expelled. He knows that the pupils he has do not have the skills to defeat the three northern teachers, and so he gathers his remaining son and two former students to exact a plan for revenge. Mikey sends his son and one of his former students off to two other teachers for training that he cannot give them as he is elderly and failing in health. He is able to teach one of his former students, and when all the training is completed, all three students are ready to face the northern Shaolin teachers. Mikey sends the three fully trained students to fight the teachers right after the three teachers' wedding celebration to three girls. The northern Shaolin teachers start to realize that they've been played by the general, and he wants to see all Shaolin defeated and excised from China. The north and south Shaolin warriors engage in combat, but eventually realize they're all being played by the general. The general and his troops jump into the fray, and it's total chaos as all-out combat ensues, and no one ends up the winner. Okay, whew. <laughs> that was the plot. <laughs> so, first impressions, uh, Pat, what'd you think of the movie? Um, I liked the, uh, you know, the, the, the fight choreography. Um, I liked the characters, like, the, they were very um, human. Like, you know, you see a lot of these yes. martial arts films, especially now, and everyone's just an unstoppable, you know, like, you know, fighting machine. And, like, there's no humanity to them. You know, you right. see these guys and, you know, like, there's, you know, they're flirting with girls. They're, you know, going out to eat. And then, like, you know, obviously there's a lot of the, combat stuff as well but even during the combat like they have you know the 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 good fun personalities um i i enjoyed this quite a bit um i wasn't sure what i was going to think about it but yeah uh, i'm definitely really glad i watched it and you know one of the things that i do is when whenever i'm uh, watching something especially something new, I will uh, you know, post about it on, on social media because my goal is to watch it, to average a movie a day, and I'm up to about 353 now with these two. Good heavens, that's awesome. <laughs> well, I, I have a couple of friends who are close to 500, so I'm way behind them. But wow. I'm, I'm close. Um, <laughs> and a friend of mine... Well, this is, show will definitely help you rack up points. Yes, well, yeah, a friend of mine is is a uh, commented on it saying, you know, she's a huge fan of uh, the Venoms, uh, Philip Kwok and Chang Shang. Yes. Uh, yep. And she just is like, oh yeah, you got to watch, you know, uh, what did she say? Uh, Crippled Avengers, Kid with a Golden Arm, yes. Five Deadly Venoms. Uh, and she was talking about right. Well, what did you say? Go ahead. Um, uh, well, I was going to say episode one, we covered crippled, uh, we covered f- uh, five deadly venoms. And then last episode we covered cripple Avengers. Yeah. And I, I added those to my, to my watch list because now I want to see more of these. Uh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Lo Meng, who, uh, in this movie is, uh, credited as, uh, Meng Lo or, right. Um, <laughs> uh, he was Chu who did the, uh, the, the Mantis style. He, uh, he's apparently like the last one that's still alive from all these. And he was in, uh, the Ip Man movies with Donnie Yen. 
Oh wow! Okay, like, he's still he's still doing his thing, which is really cool. Um, probably because uh, I did kung fu for a few years. I studied kung fu and I studied uh, northern style praying mantis. So this was uh, right in my wheelhouse, so to speak. The training regiments that uh, that uh, Chu went through were uh, slightly different from what I did. Um, right. <laughs> no, it is harsh. Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't have rubber bands attached to me while I hurled <laughs> cement blocks at trees. Um, right. But at the same time, I also wasn't fighting for my honor. Right, right. <laughs> so let's give the audience a little bit of uh, insight into what we're talking about with the actors here. The film, first of all, was known as North Shaolin versus Shaolin. I'm sorry, North Shaolin versus South Shaolin in Hong Kong. And in America, it was released under an alternate title called Unbeatable Dragon. The The main actors in this film were part of what was called the Venom Mob. And again, for those who don't know, there were the five, actually six actors that were in the Five Deadly Venoms, which we covered in episode one. And they often, after the Five Deadly Venoms, they often acted together. And they were childhood friends. Uh, they were all the main choreographers in all their films. And they're all high, highly skilled Chinese weapons experts, talented actors, and excellent acrobats. Like we just said, we, we last covered them in Crippled Avengers. However, um, the Venom Mob first returned to movies after the Five Deadly Venoms before Crippled Avengers. So this movie that we're watching was filmed between Five Deadly and Crippled. So it was the first return of the what are called the Venom Mob. Like I said before, these actors have several different names, so we're going to try and simplify things. It's not quite as confusing as Crippled Avengers, where I had to have a list in the show notes for people to understand who was who, because they all kind of looked and dressed the same in that movie, and in this one they didn't, which was helpful. The Venom Mob are comprised of the following actors. We've got Chang Shang, who he played the student in the Venoms, and he was the crazy guy in Crippled Avengers, and he's Chun Fei, a.k.a. Yang Zhang Fei, in this movie. He's the guy with the pole. Then we've got uh, Philip Chung, Philip Chung Fung Kwok, or we like to call him just Philip Kwok, uh, who my, my son, actually Spencey Dompies, one a part-time co-host, he likes to, um, to refer to him as the Asian cousin of Jared Padalecki because he kind of looks like him. So they could almost be brothers, I think. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, that's how I remember who he is. <laughs> so he went by, in this movie, his acting credit was Kuo Chui. Pardon me if I'm butchering these names. I'm trying to do a good job. But he's Philip Kwok, and he was the lizard in the Venoms, and here he plays Ho Yen Wu or Hei Ying Wu. Then we got Lo Meng, as you just mentioned, who was the toad in Venoms. And you mentioned that he was Chu. In this, I also heard him... I saw him referred to as Ho Ming Pao and Zhang Cheng here. Then we've got Wei Pei, who was the snake in the Venoms. He plays Mai Feng here, who was the son of the teacher, Mai, Mai Qi. Then we've got Sun Chen, who was the scorpion in the Venoms. He played Su Fang, also called Zhu Fang. And then Lu Feng, who was the centipede in the Venoms. He was Pao Xiao Tung here, or Bao Shang Xiong. He was, um, Bao was sort of the... Um, he was the one of the northern three that wore the black vest and was really tough. So those those are the guys, and um, let's get into the movie, Pat. You know, you've got the, the general who doesn't like the, the Shaolin, and I was a little confused on that because I didn't know the history of what was going on there. Yeah, see, this, and I was learning about this myself as, uh, as it, the movie progressed. So apparently uh, there was some sort of... Um, my guess is it was to keep people from 
rising up in revolt so that if only the military knew the martial arts, then they would have, you know, access to all the weapons and, and the training and that common people wouldn't have the opportunity to learn, um, learn any way to either defend or, you know, mount a rebellion. Which... Right, and the government was referred to as the Shings, and there was a reference later in the film to the Mings, like having the Ming. I guess the Shaolins didn't like the Shings, and they wanted the Mings to return to 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 their dynasty, if you will. Yes, yeah, like they were um, like one one group overpowered the other or forced them out. Um, my Chinese history is not uh, is not super great as as the uh, yeah same here. As the movie progressed, you could definitely see that, you know, my my guess is that the general didn't want anyone to learn anything because that way, you know, the the general for, you know, all intents and purposes would be the real power in in China. Um, right. Kind of the way, like in, in, you know, to use a Game of Thrones reference, you know, that the when Tywin Lannister was Hand of the King. He was the one really in charge of the kingdom. Like, you know, obviously right. there was a king, but he was a guy with all the money and the armies. So he was the one who had the power. Right. And the general here is sort of pitting the north and south against each other, hoping they'll wipe each other out. Yeah. And, you know, slowly we see them, you know, uh, like you were saying, like you know, the first time that they match up against each other, they're overmatched and. It's like, hey, like you know, let's just go easy on here, and dude ended up getting his ribs exploded. <laughs> and when he brings them in, he's got the three teachers. You got Bo, Sue, and Chun. And when they first come in, he's like, "All right, um, I want you to meet the other three teachers and kind of you know spar with them. And you know, if you defeat them, you become the teachers. But just show us what you got first. And he's got these three wooden dummies, and the first guy hits the dummies with his hands, and just the like. I don't even know how to describe it. Like the outer bark, if it's wood or whatever, of it just falls off in, in hand shapes. Yeah, it, like <laughs> he he, he just them. he puts both his hands on it, and yeah, it's almost like the outer edge of the uh, the practice dummy. Um, yeah, like the shellacked outer outer uh, right outer <laughs> outer part of it. Yeah, like the bark, for lack of a better term. Right, and then. Um, the other guy, which I, uh, Su Fung, who just, um, he just kicks the head right off of the other one. And, uh, let me look back here. The actor who played him, that was Sun Chen. And his style was kicking a lot. And, um, like we had mentioned in the previous episode, he, they didn't quite show him too much in that movie because that's all he really could do was kick. Whereas the other guys were really, they could do almost any acrobatics at any fighting style. And his main thing was kicking. But in this movie, it was kind of pivotal because when you get to the point where you've got them training the, the Southern three, one of them, they each have to be pitted against one of the Northern guys. And the guy who's pitted against the Southern guy has to learn how to defend against the kicking and counteract that. Yeah. Yeah, in if you look at the uh, the IMDb page, uh, it not only has the character but also their uh, their specific style. So for Lu Fang, it says Chin Kan Palm, uh, right? And you know Sun Chen is Whirlwind Kick. 
you know, and then there's butterfly right. pole and fishtail pole and, and so on. Yeah. So as we go through the movie, so you've got the three northern teachers, they come in, and then you've got Chen Fei, who with the pole, as you said, and uh, he just stabs the the statue or the the um the dummy <laughs> with the yeah, pole. Yeah, just right through it. Right through it. And it was clear from the beginning that neither the North nor the South, that they wanted to work for the general. They didn't want to teach for him, but the law kind of said they had to, and the, the Shaolin Kung Fu schools were severely restricted. So the North guys beat the three South teachers and send them packing. But then, of course, the general kills them. And it's funny because I'm watching this going, why does he need these guys to teach his troops when he can literally just touch you with his hand and you drop dead? Yeah. Yeah. And it's 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 a classic, uh, you know, political strategy, you know, when it comes to warfare, you know, like pit your enemies against each other, create conflict and then be the one who comes in and resolves a conflict. Therefore, you are the hero. Exactly. He's brutal. So he sends the three bodies back with. Yeah, <laughs> it was really brutal. And if, I find it interesting, too, that the Shaw brothers used the same kind of red paint for blood as uh, the Hammer films did, as well as George Romero in Dawn of the Dead, which it, it kind of lessens the blow because this movie's pretty harsh, violently. Yeah, um, especially the and even the, the scene with um, uh, when the guy gets his arm broken, you know, and they just put red on his elbow. It's like, oh, there I can yeah. tell you're hurt. You know, and everybody's right. always uh, <laughs> like the effects weren't fantastic but like there were definitely some scenes that uh they were like they kind of ignored the stuff that happened you know it's like oh you just suffered this catastrophic injury yeah i'm sure you can fight 60 guys like that's fine right <laughs> yeah and i mean the, these guys all did their own stunts and a lot of them were actually like i said before they were the stunt coordinators for these fight scenes so they knew what they were doing but yeah they did stretch the credibility when towards the end when what's his name was it bo that got his like chest ripped open and then he goes on and fights like 50 of those guys yeah <laughs> like he he literally like he had his hands on the guy's chest and just kind of like tore it aside like one of those sliding doors you're just like opening right. a sliding door and he's like oh and then you had uh uh su fung who's who's like oh i'm dying and i can barely speak but i'm gonna go fight for 15 minutes right. <laughs> he's got this massive abdominal wound <laughs> yeah i thought he was dead and then what's his name is running around with the pole sticking out of his stomach yeah like it's <laughs> It's like, what are you doing? It's like, no, I'm fine. <laughs> it's a flesh wound. Yeah, right. But yeah, it was it was fairly brutal. Yeah, yeah. Which I think was good that they used the um, that fake looking blood because it would have been much more gruesome with realistic looking blood. Yeah. So we've got the general, right? He, like we said, he kills those three guys and he sends them back home claiming, and uh, this confused me when I first watched it because, I don't know, the, his subordinate, who's also a general, I don't know how that works, General Hua, sends him with the three guys and he's telling the South guys, oh yeah, they um they sparred and then they died in their sleep. And uh, I personally, just watching it the first time, I got confused by, I didn't understand why he was saying that and then I realized, oh yeah, he's there, they're pitting the south against the north so that causes the teacher uh my key from the south to get angry and he wants to get revenge 
on them. So he sends three more guys up to the north <laughs> to replace the teachers and, you know, hopefully defeat the northern guys. And, you know, and it was interesting how the north guys, they really didn't want to fight. They kept, the leader kept saying, no, can we just talk about this? <laughs> you don't understand. We suspect something's not right here. Yeah, Su Fung kept saying, like, yeah, this this isn't right. Let's talk about this. They're like, no, let me break this table and fight you. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah, so yeah, the three guys, two of them die, and one of them is Mikey's son. And that's when he just basically says to his students, you know, you got to go. I'm going to disperse you because there's no way you're going to defeat these guys and don't go seeking trouble because you'll just get expelled. And so we don't really see it. I guess off screen... He somehow calls in his two former students because he's got his other son. But I thought that was interesting that they kind of glossed over that, that. All of a sudden, these two guys just show up and they're like, oh, yeah, master, we're here to help you. <laughs> it's like, OK, what? Yeah, like I, I was I was a little confused by that. It's like, all right, whatever. Like they probably heard about it. Somebody told them and, and here they are. Right. <laughs> and before that, you got a uh, Zhu Yin, who is this uh, chick who's sort of the servant. She's ordered by the general to serve the three teachers and they all kind of like her. But it was really, um, was it a, it was Su Fong that mm-hmm. was really into her? Yeah. So I thought that was interesting because up to this point, the two movies that we've covered, and I know you haven't seen them yet, but there are no females really in it. And even even then in this movie, the females that were in it were ancillary characters. They weren't part of the main action that was going on, with the exception of when the two fruit girls were being accosted by one of the southern uh, Shaolin guys and... uh, they stepped in. And, oh no, I'm sorry. She was. They were being accosted by the guards, and the Southern Shaolin guy stepped in and saved them. Yes, and then even then, that kind of uh, almost caused a problem with the Northern guys. But, but they were like, "No, no, no, we're not. We're not here to fight you. Like those guys, we're not with them." Right. And I thought that was interesting too because it showed you. Even again, you've got two encounters now with two of the the guys from the south. And they're nice guys. And when they meet these guys, yeah, okay, they, they do a little sparring in the street, and then they're cool with it. And they're like, hey, you're awesome, and, you know, you're awesome. And I'm not going to tell you my name, but that's okay. And, you know, they, they, they were friendly to begin with and until they found out that they were rivals. And then it kind of, things changed for a little bit. Right. Because, I mean, they just wanted to go pay their respects for the deaths of the, uh, the first three students. And... Oh, right. At that point, it was it was like, oh, well, you killed them. It's like, we didn't even hit them that hard. Right. <laughs> like, we specifically tried not to. Right. The two guys were Ho Yin Wu. He was the first guy that comes along. And then the second guy was Ying Wu, the one who um, stops the, the, the guards from harassing the two fruit girls. Um, they encounter Bo Tung and Chan Fei at the fruit stand. And, and like we said, they both engage in friendly combat. And then... Um, uh, they meet up with Mikey, like you said, to rep- to pay their respects. And Mikey is still bent on revenge. So he sends Ying Wu, who was the second guy, to another guy named Nan Sham. And I also saw uh, he's got a different name called Wang Lang. And I'm not sure where I got that from, whether it was from the subtitles or online. But he's a master mantis boxer. And uh, Mikey basically tells him that the mantis style is what you need to defeat the Jin Kang Palm style. So you've got, like we talked about, you've got style versus style here. 
So, uh, Mikey, the teacher, sends his son to learn the Young Chung style from a guy named Lung Bay. He's nicknamed the Gardener. Um, and these two other teachers, like, they're kind of like, why, why are you here? Okay, well, I guess, you know, he's he's old and creebly, so we'll teach you. But they kind of look the same. So did you find it confusing at first when I they did. were cutting between the training? Yeah. Yeah, like, I was like, wait a minute. When, when did this get? And everybody's got the long, <laughs> long, like, I was like, oh, it's the guy with the long ponytail. Ah, oh, crap, there's like four of them with long ponytails. <laughs> Like I said, it was worse in Crippled Avengers because not only did they all have the same hairstyle, they all wore the same white outfits. So it was very hard to tell who was who. I mean, Chien Sun is easy because he's got those like amazing eyebrows. Yeah, yeah. It's the, the, and that's the good thing about doing this podcast too for us is that as we're watching these films, we get to know the actors and we see them more often, and you know it won't be so confusing. But the teachers, the two old guys, they both had the same outfit and the same gray hair. And it, like I think one had more of a rounder face and he had a gap on his bottom teeth and the other one had a thinner face and a gap on his top teeth. So that was how I was able to kind of tell them apart. Yeah, I have the same problem when I watch like, you know, I, I watched Green Street Hooligans and like so many of those guys looked exactly the same. It was just like, oh, I'm a cockney British thug. Like, <laughs> I don't know who half of you guys are. Like I know Charlie Hunnam and Elijah Wood and like everybody else looks exactly the same. That's funny. <laughs> I've never seen that. Oh, man. So what was interesting, what I thought was interesting, so Mikey sends off um, his son and uh, Ying Wu off to be trained, but then he decides to train Ho Yan Wu himself, which I thought he was too old. But, you know, so he he does it anyways. So he doesn't get as quite as an intense training sequence as the other two guys get. But I thought the, the two training sequences with... Um, with Ying Wu and the son there were uh, were really entertaining and really cool. Like, with the exception of the phony stone, you know, weights that were just clearly styrofoam. Yeah, I mean, like I... every every rock in this movie was clearly fake. Oh, and the trees. Right. <laughs> I mean, I liked the uh, the uh, repeated uh, egg scenes. Yes, like that was funny. Like that was really funny. It's like, oh, I love eggs. It's like, yeah, let's see if you like them four months from now when you've eaten them every single day. <laughs> now, that was one part that was confusing me, too, where he said, well, if you break the eggs, you got to eat them. So did he literally, like, scrape the eggs off the edge of the well and then cook them up? Or did he just cook two other eggs? Like, I'm imagining he, he them, he scraped it off the, off the well. I mean, like, oh. those are the specific eggs. He kept saying, like, you can't waste them. <laughs> that was gross then. <laughs> But he was, I don't know if he was on wires. It looked like he was really doing that, like doing the push-ups with his fingers. That is a, a, a specific training that you do. Um, uh, you try to, uh, in Mantis uh, Kung Fu, you try to make your fingers and your, your knuckles as strong as possible uh, because of the different strikes that you use. Um, like there are, if you go to, to say like the, like the, um, there are certain training facilities in China where you'll see trees on the outside uh, and there are little holes all over the tree and that's from finger strikes 
Oh, my God. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, they did say, I was reading, I have a book, it's called The Ultimate Guide to Martial Art Movies of the 70s, and they did say in that, uh, the description of this film that the training sequences that were in here had never been shown on film before. So there were a lot of interesting secrets almost given to the public that had never been seen. I will say probably some of the uh, t- the training scenes uh, might have been slightly exaggerated, like the uh, one finger push-ups while he was completely like uh, vertical. Uh, I don't think right. he was doing that. <laughs> I half expected to see Yoda sitting on his foot when. He... Yeah, right. Well, I just thought it was funny where, like, you know, you see his 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 teacher take this gigantic stone that should weigh, you know, six seven hundred pounds, and just like <laughs> carry it over. It's like, oh, sorry, I'm too old to do this, but let me carry this giant rock and put it on your back. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, it was that was so funny. It was. He didn't even make an effort to to really make it look heavy. He just lifted it and put it on his back and then took it off. He was like, oh, this is mildly inconvenient. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. So Lung Bay is teaching Mikey's son the young Chun style, which involves a lot of balance. And he tells him it was created by a woman named Wu Mei. And I, I thought that was an interesting little uh, tidbit that I thought, should have been expanded upon or should have had something to do with the story. I didn't really understand why he, it was almost like a throwaway line of dialogue unless it was truly accurate historically. Yeah, see that I don't know, but I would imagine that, uh, like it seems, it seems accurate. Like if you, if you look at some of the, uh, weapons that are used in martial arts, most of them are also used, uh, in other, walks of life like i believe nunchucks were originally like a farming implement uh for specific i I don't know exactly what they were used for but you know like all these different uh things that they they do with various weapons like there are uh fighting techniques for uh, canes like if you're walking around like you're you're an older person with a cane like there are fighting techniques used using a cane you know like everything right right. uh it's almost like you know you use everything that you can as a means of self-defense sort of the way jackie chan does i mean he walks into a room and anything in there becomes a weapon for him right yeah so so that that's pretty awesome and then the training sequences they just got more and more intense and you know heavier weights on the guy's back and he had put rings on his feet and then stretching with the uh with the rubber bands pulling against them. And this is kind of something that's sort of hard to describe on an audio podcast here, but these training sequences are, they're common in Shaw Brothers films. It's one of those things that you kind of look to expect almost is, okay, so when's the training sequence coming? Because that's going to be awesome. I I really thought they did it well here because it wasn't just a throwaway 10-minute montage set to music. It was... It was getting more intense with each guy, and you were just kind of cutting back and forth between each guy and and watching what they were going through, even though, you know, visually some of it was kind of silly and unbelievable. You got into it, and the story made it work, I thought. Yeah, and it wasn't like a quick, you know, like a Rocky montage where it's like, you know, five minutes, if that, you know, just showing right. slight improvement every time. It was, you know, a pretty sizable chunk of the film, so you could see the actual... Uh, you know, like where they started 
it's like, oh, these guys are in pretty good shape. They can, they can do some pretty cool stuff. And then it's like, all right, well now try doing this. And like, they struggle with it. And you know, like yeah. you were talking about with the <laughs> iron rings, it's like, all right, put that iron ring on your, on your foot. And you know, so he puts the iron ring on, he's wearing, it's essentially an ankle, ankle weight. Right. Then he has to wear like six or seven of them. And like, you can see him yeah. doing these great <laughs> leaps and, 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 uh, and jumps and, it's like, all right, now if you take those off, now you're going to be even better. You're going to be faster. And, like, that's, a, again, like you were saying, like, it's a common uh, training thing where if you train with weights, you know, you're going to be that much faster without them. Right, exactly. And so the, so the training sequences were really awesome. And interspersed in there, we had um, the, the three northerners that were sort of, or at least two of them, that were getting friendly with the girls selling the fruit. Mm-hmm. Th- those were fun sequences. I thought the girls were really funny, and they they didn't take them seriously at first. They were just like, "Yeah, you guys are whatever you guys, you know." <laughs> what if I let yeah, you keep dope. the change? Would I be a nice guy then? Nope. <laughs> right. <laughs> She's like, "No, because you're still a guy. <laughs> you work for the king or the general." But then the, they had to explain that away. So they all then, um, uh, what's his name? Was it Son? He's getting closer to the servant girl there. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, all three of the Northerners are going to marry all three of the girls. And um, you've got the, the the three Southern students have completed their training. They return to Mikey, who's now dying. And his last words to them are to make them swear to accept the Shaolin and not accept the Shing. So at that point, I'm watching this going, shit, they're on the fucking same side as the North guys. Hope and now I'm thinking how the movie's gonna go is they're gonna start to clash and they're gonna they're all gonna realize, oh shit, we're all on the same side and then and then they turn around and it'll be them versus the general and his men. And it didn't quite work that way. No. And I mean it it sort of did, but it was one of those like I wish we had talked about this five minutes ago when we weren't all mortally wounded. <laughs> And Sun tries at the beginning. He's like, let's let's not do this, you know. Even Bao offers wine to Ying Wu before they fight, which which I thought that was an interesting cultural thing where they would they drink a cup of wine and then show each other the empty cup. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what that signified. I didn't get a chance to look that one up, but I'm curious I, to know. I'm guessing it's like they're both like, <clears throat> you know, because obviously wine is going to impair you one way or the other. And it's like, all right, I'm showing you that I am. I'm drinking this, you know, and, you know, I'm accepting the fact that I'm going to be slowed or impaired. You know, I'm not going to be my, my full strength. Right. So they, they prove they're equally impaired. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I got out of it. Like I, you know, like you said, I, I didn't research that either, but that's, you know, I was looking at it like, okay, they're, you know, they're both going in on like their skill level might be different. But they're both drinking three cups of wine, and so that will right. put them on an uh, on even footing. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. So again, you know, the North is trying not to fight, but the South really are convinced that they want uh, revenge. So the fight begins, and this whole end battle is pretty insane. And of course, you're biting your nails, going, "When are these guys going to realize, you know, wise up and realize they're all on the same side?" But I just thought. I just love the fight sequences in the Shaw Brothers movies because it's, it's like a ballet. You know, it's just the the, the style of, of the way they're shot, especially Chang Chase's direction. 
the the camera movements he uses he he's not afraid to use wide shots because they're not stunt they're not using stuntmen they are doing their own stunts i mean what did you think of this fight sequence i mean watching all the fight sequences uh they're very very well done and the only time you'd really see a cut is when someone was doing like one of those ridiculous like flying leaps um because they yeah. were clearly jumping off of something right um <laughs> on wires but one of the things that uh i learned when i was when i was doing kung fu and i never knew this is that there is for every uh especially well i don't know about for everything but for uh the stuff that i learned for every sequence of moves say there's like a uh, we would learn like a 10 or 15 sequence mo- uh, set of moves mm-hmm. there is an opposite side to that so like anytime you would see like oh like these guys like they're doing this you know it's clearly you know, choreographed, but they're like, no, if we're doing, you know, this set of moves, you're going to do the opposite set. Like there was every, for every offensive attack, there was a defensive uh, set of moves as well. And we would practice that. uh, We would practice both sides, you know, we almost like sparring where it's like, okay, you know, this first move is I'm going to throw a punch, then block, then, you know, a sweeping chop. And like the other side was, you know, a block, a counter, and then like you duck your head underneath. Like it's, it's really interesting, you know, so it's not just, oh, we're making up a bunch of moves. It's right. This is how the training went. And if you're able to recognize, it's like, okay, I see this first three moves. I know what the next five moves are going to be and how to counter that. And like your muscle memory uh, takes over. Oh, absolutely! And I think that was that was kind of the point too of the of um, the southern guys was learning. Like for example, where the mantis was the counter to the Jin Kang palm. Yes. So they each they each had their own counter to the three northerners. Mm-hmm. Um, so it made them equals. And it was funny because like as the movie's progressing, I'm watching it and I'm like, the three northerners were good. They proved they were awesome. But I was afraid they were a little cocky, and I was worried that they would eventually encounter something that they wouldn't be able to, to deal with. And they did, but they weren't cocky about it. They, they walked into it knowing that, okay, we, we're going to really have a f- the fight of our lives on our hands here. Right. Yeah, it wasn't just, you know, we're going to, uh, we're going to just, you know, roll over these guys like we did before, like, you know, and they can tell as soon as they start uh, doing their movements and start, you know, with their with their uh, with their fighting, that okay, these guys have gotten significantly better since the last time we saw them, you know, a few months ago. So, <clears throat> and that's another thing that I I learned um, because I was very new and I wanted to see. I was like, oh, you know, I think I can, you know, hold my own against somebody. So I we did a sparring session and there was a gentleman who had uh, 10 years of Bra- uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and six years of uh, Kung Fu and was a black belt in both of them. And I was like, I want to see how I do against this guy. And he's like, well, uh, that's fine. He goes, but I'm going to tell you, 
<laughs> however hard you go against me is how hard I will go against you. Like if you give 50%, I'll give 50%. But if you give a hundred percent, I'm going to give a hundred percent. I'm like, well, guess you got to go big or go home. And, uh, I learned quite a bit like those extra 16 years compared to my 16 lessons. Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge <laughs> difference. Uh, <laughs> but it does tell you, because I did manage to land a, a pretty good strike, and he actually congratulated me on it afterwards. He's like, yeah, you got me like like a, a really good kidney shot. Like, that was really good. Um, but wow. he, like, I was pretty, like, even with all the sparring gear, I got pretty battered. I ended up uh, with a nosebleed. Like, he hit me in the face. He's like, oh, my God. I'm, so, I'm like, it's fine. I'm okay. I wanted to see what my skill level was and like they were all, all like the teachers were worried I was going to quit. I was like, no, like he didn't ask me to spar. I asked him and he told me what was going to right. happen. I was very well informed. <laughs> like I was pretty sure I was going to get my ass kicked. I just wanted to see how I could handle it. Like, you know, I took several punches to the face and chest and like, he was so much faster than me, and he was so much stronger than me. <laughs> but, like, that was the thing. It's like, I get uh, where these guys are coming from. It's like, all right, you know, I know where my skill level is, and I will, you know, only go up to a certain point to match your skill level. And then they realized we have to step our game up in a big way because their skill level is higher. Right. And I, I liked how in the fight, the, I, even though we really didn't need it, I think maybe the audience back in, what, 76, 78 needed it, was when they would flash back to the training montages so you could see how they were applying what they learned in the combat at hand. You know, I, I was like, all right, I, we don't really need that, but okay, yeah, I get yeah, it. Yeah, but they do that in, <laughs> you know, lots of movies, though. Like, you know, Karate Kid, like, they yeah. did that quite a bit um uh, that's true you know and that's kind of what this reminded me of it's like all right you know karate kid is definitely taking a lot of these unorthodox training methods uh, applying them slightly differently and you know it's obviously it's different because karate is japanese and kung fu is chinese um so you know there's there's a difference there but it's the unorthodox training methods and the, you know, the building up of muscle memory in various ways, you know, that, I mean, the, these guys in Invincible Shaolin knew that they were training a specific way and they had trained before, so they knew that there was going to be some weird stuff, you know, like every time you lose your balance, you have to plant new flowers, like that's. Right, that was awesome. And like every 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 time you see the guy, like he's all his face is all covered with dirt, or like every time you break an egg, yeah. you have to eat the egg. Like, like that's you know, even the the last time was the best. <laughs> the last one was the best. Uh, I did it. I didn't break the egg. Describe Aww. that for the audience. <laughs> like he was, he was all excited, and he was like, "Yes, I did it. I didn't break the egg this time." And then he clenched his hand and crushed the egg like ah oh. <laughs> eggs for dinner <laughs> that was good and i i loved the training machine that he had where it was basically to train his, like first he he was training his arms to really be able to withstand anything and then it was 
his body to be able to to take care of the arms and he had that device i can't even describe it it's a the uh, um the pole and then a the thing that swings around it and it's got sort of a mallet on each end he called it the mill and so when he pushes one side the mill right and we, so he pushes one side or hits one side the other side hits him in the back and vice versa and it was funny because the first few times he did it he was surprised every time <laughs> like you think he would figure it out like pretty quickly i think with that it's he didn't expect it to get him as quickly as it did so like you know, part of what that I think was supposed to do was train him to hit and turn around and block. It's almost like you're training to fight multiple people with that type of device. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but like, yeah. as well as like physically take the yeah, punishment, like, you know, you're getting hit in the back, you're getting hit in the stomach. I mean, that's how Houdini died. He took a sucker punch to the stomach and like it, it right. killed him. Yeah. Um, you know, cause that's, you know, you got all your, you know, your liver, your kidneys, you know, taking shots there is not, uh, not what you want. Yeah. So this end fight was just intense and insane. And then ultimately once the North and South both kind of realize, even though half of them are dying, they realize they're on the same side. It's that's when the general jumps into the fight and, uh, the shit gets real. Yeah. 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 Um, but it's, you know, like we were saying earlier, it's crazy because there's so many uh, mortal injuries that these guys have faced. You know, one guy's got the uh, the pole sticking through his stomach. Another guy has his chest ripped open. Right. Another guy's got like this huge slash across his stomach. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I'm dying. And as I'm dying, I can tell you this. And it's like, you know, I never meant to kill your brother. It was an accident. My bad. Like, it's like, oh. Maybe you weren't such a jerk after all. Uh, and again, like, I wish someone would have said this five minutes ago. Like, we tried. You guys wouldn't right. listen. You were all revenge, revenge, revenge. Yeah. Yeah. So at the very end, everybody, including the general, dies, except for Mai Feng and Ying Wu, and they get away at the end. And I'm watching it, and I'm like, that's it? Yeah, Say, they what? just run away, and, like, they're still running, and it's like, you know, all the credits come up. It's like, yeah, but... What happened? Like, did they get away? <laughs> there were hundreds of soldiers. Did they? Did they escape? Like, what happened to the women? Like, yeah. the women were still in that courtyard. Like, what? Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, <laughs> I I have to say, I did not like that ending. I did, I didn't like the way they ended it just abruptly. No, like it was that. a really weird ending where it just stopped. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like literally they that's all the money we have for film we're all done it's like oh you want to know what happens too bad use your imagination right <laughs> i mean it, that would definitely set it up for a sequel where it would be like you know the two guys you know training their own their own guys to come back and and, and fight and win but right i didn't see that happening Okay, so final thoughts on Invincible Shell and Pat. What did you think your your first real foray into the Shaw Brothers? Library? Well, this has a uh, a rating of seven out of ten based on nine hundred and fifty eight uh, reviews on IMDb. Uh, I'm going to give it an eight. I enjoyed this a lot. Um, it had some of the you know ridiculous, over the top stuff that you would expect from these types of films. 
uh, you know, like the crazy right. training montage where it's like, oh, I've got all these rubber bands on me, but I'm still strong enough to hurl boulders at a tree and destroy it. Um, like, obviously, that's over the top, and it's definitely like, uh, you know, really it's like, oh, look how intense this training is. So this is how I'm able to do all these amazing things. It's like, yeah, that's fine. Like, you know, I expected that. Um, my only real issue is that on a lot of the fight scenes, despite the, uh, the obvious skill of all these guys, especially when there were multiple people involved, uh, they were clearly not hitting each other. Like you'd see a, like a, a kick or a punch that was a good foot away from someone and they'd like, you know, get knocked backwards. That's like, you know, right. You guys did such a good job when it was one-on-one. And then like when they have all these, I mean, maybe the, the extras that were playing the soldiers weren't as good. Uh, you know, they weren't as highly skilled. That would be my guess. And they didn't want anybody getting hurt. Yeah, probably. But like, you know, fix the camera angle a little bit and make it at least seem realistic. Like this should look better than a power Rangers battle. (laughs) <laughs> but that that you know that's really the only the only criticism like i thought the characters were fun um you know and one of the things that you, you can't control like because this was uh dubbed uh some of the voices just didn't seem to match the characters uh um, no like the sun and i'm not talking about like <laughs> oh he started talking and then like his you know his lips are still moving but there's no sound coming out i'm not talking about that i'm just talking about no the i know actual what you mean. Yeah. voice it's like you have this big, huge guy. It's like, hi, yeah. my name's Gary. It's like, no, like that's. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. Like, or the son was like, uh, we're gonna get revenge on him, yeah. Dad. Oh, it's like, no, he should have a little bit more of a man. See, manly I think voice. what they're what they're doing, especially with like the 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 inferior general there, uh, like they give him this yeah. whiny, weaselly voice to kind of almost as a another character trait to like, you know, show you like, yeah. yeah, this is really what this guy is like. Yeah. This would have been a good movie to watch in, in the original Chinese with English dubs, with English subtitles. I find sometimes, you know, it, it's, I enjoy foreign films more if I can hear the original language, but sometimes I don't feel like reading. But these days I put the subtitles on everything just because I'm tired of going to my wife. What did he say? What'd she say? And rewinding the damn show. So like I just throw the subtitles on and I can just see and hear everything. All I think once. another good, uh, good rule for that is, um, uh, if you, if you have something that's subtitled and dubbed, like one of my favorite films, Akira, um, what they're saying and what the subtitles are, can be different. Yes, I have noticed that uh, quite a bit. But it's all dependent on, you know, what is the exact translation because there are phrases and terms, especially slang terms, that simply don't translate. <clears throat> like, uh, I, I saw this uh, list of uh, terribly, terribly translated tattoos where it was like this young lady wanted to get, uh, I think it was like the Chinese characters for Butterfly. But there wasn't, like, there's nothing for butterfly, so they did, like, butter and fly, like, the little guy that buzzes around. And so it's like, that's technically what it says, but that's not 
what it means. <laughs> like it does say butterfly, oh, but not the way you want it to say it. So like there's there's little interesting things like that where there's not always an exact translation for it, which I think is kind of uh, kind of cool, especially where you know you're trying to translate it into different languages for different audiences. Exactly. Like I, I said before in a, a different um, episode of a different show, I think, um, I have a movie I picked up on DVD recently from Kino called uh, Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man. And it's an Italian cop, you know, ultra-violent cop movie directed by uh, Ruggiero Deodato, who mm-hmm. did Cannibal Holocaust. And I, I watched it with the English dub and the English subtitles. And the English subtitles were verbatim translations of the Italian. Whereas the dub was actually really good, and they made the dialogue more colloquial at using phrases that English-speaking people would understand better than if it was just, you know, uh, this car drives well. It was like, whoa, it's, you know, he's loose as a goose, you know, something like that. It uh, It's all in the translation, and I th- I think, you know, that the, sometimes these movies can suffer from yeah, that. Yeah, and I think also part of it is trying to form what someone is saying around the uh, mouth movements of the original actor also can contribute to something sounding off. Yeah. So overall, I think we both enjoyed this movie. I I was very disappointed with the ending, but I love Chang Che's direction. I I highly recommend people should go out and see it if you haven't already. It's Invincible Shaolin right now. It's available on Prime. Yep. And uh, so is the next film we're going to talk about, Death Rides a Horse. But we're going to take a quick break here. And then when we return, we will jump over to Italy and talk about a spaghetti western. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host... Derek M. Cook and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Hey folks, I just wanted to take a minute here to tell you about the hosting service that we use at Haven Podcasts, podserve.fm. Podcast hosting has never been easier. They do all the work to get your podcast on Apple Podcasts and other major podcast networks. They help you navigate the podcasting world, whether you're brand new or have years of experience. Folks, I can't tell you how happy I am with their service. When I first started this podcast, I searched around intensely for the right hosting platform. I found PodServe and used their simple four-step process, and in a short amount of time, my podcasts were on the internet and available through all the major podcast networks. And their customer support is unreal. Every time I goof things up and make a mistake, like uh, posting the wrong show to the wrong feed, I email them, and I kid you not, within minutes I get a response and the problem is resolved. And they're the only podcasting host that actually helps you get listeners. Other podcast hosts stop at Podcast Upload and don't help promote your podcast. Well, PodServe makes sure your podcast is seen by thousands of people. 
The promotion is free, and they put you on podparadise.com, which has over 5,000 visits a day from avid podcast listeners and is growing every day. Each day, Pod Paradise selects five podcasts to spotlight on their front page. Maybe yours could be there soon. Podsurf's pricing is simple. Only 19 bucks a month. That's it. No tiered pricing platform, just one low fee. For 19 bucks a month, you get unlimited storage, unlimited podcasts, free podcast promotion, your podcasts on all platforms, detailed download analytics, one-on-one customer support. You pay month to month, and you can cancel at any time. And when you sign up, you get 14 days free. You don't even have to give them your credit card. I love their service so much, I put a reminder in my phone to add my credit card when the 14 days was almost up. I couldn't give them my 19 bucks fast enough. I'm telling you, I, I really didn't believe it until I actually signed up and saw my podcasts on everything from iTunes to Stitcher and Spotify and more in a ridiculously short amount of time. So if you've got a podcast and you don't have a hosting platform, I highly recommend podserve.fm. Check them out. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. The horse. When you've waited 15 years to find a man, it's a shame you can only kill him once. who killed five defenseless people made one big mistake. They should have killed six. Ever since he was a little boy, 
there was one thing he always wanted to do. Find four men and kill them. Okay, on to our spaghetti western. Today we are talking about Death Rides a Horse, starring Lee Van Cleef. So, Pat, do you want to do the honors and give us a plot synopsis here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Bill, played by, uh, well, the older Bill, played by John Philip Law, which, uh, on a side note, if you're going to be in a, in a western, like, that's probably one of the best names to possibly have. <laughs> exactly. A boy whose father was killed and mother and sister were raped and murdered in front of him by a gang sets out 15 years later to exact revenge, having used the time to become an expert marksman with a gun. And we get to see him uh, training, and uh, he is very, very good at what he does. Each of the outlaws bears a characteristic that Bill memorized while watching his family be slaughtered and his house set on fire. First has a tattoo of four aces on his chest, the second a scar, the third one a distinctive earring, and the fourth, who was the one who saved young Bill from the burning house, wears a necklace bearing a skull. While he saw the face of the fifth, he never saw the face of the man who saved him from the fire. As Bill begins his journey, a gunfighter named Ryan, played by Lee Van Cleef in a super badass role, is released from a prison after serving 15 years there. He was framed for an armed robbery by the very same man who murdered Bill's family. When they meet along the way, Ryan gets the better of Bill, who is blinded by vengeance, but he does Bill no harm. In the next town, Ryan asks for a man named Kavanaugh, played by Anthony Dawson, whom Bill recognized later as the man with four aces tattoo. Bill manages to kill Kavanaugh in a duel, but the more experienced Ryan insists on tracking the other outlaws alone. They cross paths again in Linden City, where Ryan meets rich banker Walcott, played by Luigi Pistilli, and demands his share of the robbery 15 years ago. $1,000 for every year in jail. And demands that he covers Kavanaugh's portion, so he wants $30,000. Walcott stages a robbery on his own bank and frames Ryan. When the tables are turned later, Bill reciprocates, helping Ryan escape from jail. An equally determined Bill sets out ahead of him. Bill reaches a Mexican town where he recognizes the man with the big earring and guns him down. He is captured by the outlaws, beaten and buried alive from the neck down. He had also recognized the man with the scar and Walcott, uh, which is Luigi Pistilli. Left to die in the hot sun, he is rescued by Ryan, who shoots several men standing guard. Preparing for the gang's return, Bill notices that Ryan is wearing a necklace with a skull. Ryan admits he was present during the murders, but insists that he got there late and had nothing to do with what happened to his family. He gives his word that once the outlaws have been dealt with, he will remain to face whatever justice Bill seeks. In a final shootout during a sandstorm, the last remaining man who killed Bill's family has him dead to rights, only to be killed by Ryan's thrown knife. Bill nonetheless insists on revenge. Ryan's gun is empty, so Bill tosses a bullet to him. He has just one bullet left himself now. Ryan turns his back and walks away, daring Bill to shoot him in the back. 
Bill fires, but only to kill a surviving outlaw. Grateful Ryan then watches as he mounts his horse and rides away. Now, excellent. I really, really liked this uh, this film. Uh, and awesome. The the uh, the summary that I had was from Wikipedia, but there was definitely some stuff that was missing, so I, I added a little bit a uh, little bit of my own flavor to it. Yeah, it was good. And, you know, I was watching it the other day just to catch. I, I had seen this before a, few, a couple times and in, um, in years ago. So it's it's been a long time. And as I'm watching it, I'm realizing and I think that's when I texted you that it was really shitty quality. And I felt bad. I, I was like, oh, God, I hope he doesn't hate the movie because, you know, sometimes that can that can color a person's opinion of a movie. But I think this movie was so good. It didn't matter if it was shitty quality. Yeah, Ennio Morricone's score, first of all, I'm sorry, Academy Award winner Ennio Morricone, <laughs> who you and I have talked about before because he also did the score for The Thing. Correct. Um, partnered with Lee Van Cleef. Like like I said, I've never really watched any uh, any Westerns, but I recognize Lee Van Cleef. He was so good in this yeah um like he was definitely that scary like almost supernatural type of uh type of guy uh yeah he was easily like like in this role you could tell he had done it a thousand times before and he just fit so perfectly into that character yeah it was um I mean, you kind of put two and two together because they don't show the face of the guy that pulled uh, Bill out of the house. And, right. you know, you, you kind of put two and two. And obviously, you like the zooming in on each distinct feature that uh, the gang had. You know, it's 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 one of those things, the those movies where it's like, well, I'm after these guys for a specific reason. And this guy's after the, you know, them for a specific reason. But they both believe that their reason was more valid than the other one. Like, you know, for Bill, his entire family was killed. Right. And for Ryan, they framed him and left him, you know, on a, basically like a Western expanse expansion chain gang, you know, cause this is a Western, right. you know, so they're, you know, building railroads or building roads or, you know, right. you know for 15 very years. hard labor. Yeah. For 15 years. And so the, the, the first guy at Kavanaugh is like, well, you know, sorry for your trouble. Here's a hundred dollars. Right. It's like a hundred dollars for 15 years. I, I even said that out loud. I'm like a hundred dollars for 15 years of his life. And then Lee Van Cleef's like, $100 for 15 years of my life. <laughs> oh, man. Did you know, I, I had read this a while ago, Lee Van Cleef, when he was in he was in the movie High Noon, he was supposed to have a bigger role. And the director wanted him to get a nose job so he wouldn't look quite like a bad guy. And he's like, no, I'm not fucking doing that. And so the, the, he ended up with like a, a bit part in the film. <laughs> but yeah, like he, it's ridiculous. You know, kind of speaking of that, though, um, you know, this definitely had the classic uh, 
and I noticed this about his character. He wore the black hat, but he had a white shirt. Yep. Uh, I noticed that too. You know, and obviously in Westerns, like, oh, he's got a black hat. He's the bad guy. Oh, right. he's got a white hat. He's the good guy. Like, that's just, you know, the, the over the top way of, of showing like, yeah, this is definitely, this is definitely the good guy. This is definitely the bad guy. Yeah. And I really liked how they set them up with the, the way Ryan and Bill meet is when Bill, uh, Ryan goes to the grave site near the house of the, was it the Macedo family of the, you know, like you said, they're all slaughtered and you could tell he was feeling bad about what happened. I mean, 15 years went by and that's the first place he goes. And then, you know, Bill encounters him. He knows he, he suspects he may have something to do with it, but you know, I think it was more on, on Ryan that really figured out, Oh, that's the little kid that I saved and he's all grown up now. And, I think that's why he tries to keep him at arm's length and is constantly stealing his horse throughout the movie because he doesn't want him to get hurt. Right, and he because he has several chances to kill him, and I do like the uh, when he kills Kavanaugh, and then Ryan steals his horse, and then you get a callback to that later on in the at yeah. the end, <laughs> and he's like, "Thanks for not taking my horse, or thanks for leaving me my horse." Yeah, <laughs> and he. When John Philip Law steals his horse, he gives him his gun back. He's like, well, you might need this, which is what he had said to him when he when he stole John Philip Law's horse first, the first time. Mm-hmm. And again, I can't get over the fact that his name is John Philip Law and like he's playing like this vengeful guy. <laughs> it's like, that's so perfect. Yeah, I know. He wasn't in a ton of stuff. He was, um, you know, obviously he was Bill Missy to hear. He played the Russian sailor in the... Uh, the, that hilarious 1966 film, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. Um, he was the main character, the title character, in Mario Bava's Danger Diabolic, which was in 1968. And he played the um, the blind angel Pygar in the movie Barbarella, also in 68. So 68 was a big year for me. These three movies come out. One other thing he did was he was in the much maligned Otto Preminger film Skidoo, also from 68. <laughs> Busy guy. Yeah. I thought his portrayal in this was odd. I thought he was... I couldn't put my finger on it, but there was just something off about him. And I kind of chalked it up to the fact that he probably would be a little off after having witnessed what he did at, what, age 10? This, you know, mother and sister being raped and the father killed. And probably then younger than that. Down. Yeah. I think he was probably like six or seven because I don't think he was more than 21, 22 years old. Oh, okay, yeah. That's what I got anyways. So, I just, he didn't he seem, he seemed odd though. His mannerisms and his reactions to things weren't like, I don't know, they, he was, I can't explain it. <laughs> yeah, he definitely had, uh, you could definitely see that there was some kind of, almost like post-traumatic stress with him. Yeah. Like every time he noticed something or he found something out. He was just like singularly focused. That's it. Everything else doesn't matter. Um, it's funny. The, the, uh, the other thing that I thought that was interesting was, uh, the way the law worked back then where it's like, you know, the sheriff sitting down playing cards and he's just like, Oh, you're under arrest. Like he makes no <laughs> attempt to get up and arrest the guy. He's like, yeah, you're under arrest. Hey right. judge, when can we, uh, when can we do a trial? 
I don't know, tomorrow. All right, good. And then Kavanaugh walks down the stairs. No, I was self-defense. All right, all the charges are dropped. Yeah. (laughs) What? That's not how that works. Or like when the the two ninja cowboys sneak into Lee Van Cleef's room and he guns them down and the sheriff comes in. Oh, yeah, clearly uh, self-defense. All right, see ya. But uh, just to avoid complication, you should probably leave town. Just, just leave right. Town. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> Which I thought that was funny though. The the, the ninja cowboys because they were the two guys at the beginning when they were creeping up on the Macedo farm, and those two guys went in first and started you know taking out all the other guys almost like Batman. I mean that was a cool scene where they've got the black ponchos and they're creeping up and like literally pulling people back into the shadows and breaking their necks and stuff. Yeah, it's very, uh, I mean, you can definitely see that there's some, like, pulp uh, influence on some of these westerns. Yeah, absolutely. So, Lee Van Cleef, I remember seeing him as a kid at the drive-in, because he was in Escape from New York in 81. I also knew him from TV because I'd seen him in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and uh, which, if people at home don't know, they should know that it's a spaghetti western starring Clint Eastwood from 66, and it was directed by Sergio Leone. But for me, Lee Van Cleef, the, what put him on the map for me was he was the lead in an 84 TV show called The Master, in which he was this American ninja master named John Peter McAllister. And he had this apprentice that he was training named Max Keller, who was played by Timothy Van Patten, who I also knew him from. He was he played a character called Salami on a show called The White Shadows. And it was one of those storylines where they were on the hunt for Lee Van Cleef's character's daughter. And along the way, they'd help people in trouble. So it was kind of like the A-team, except with ninjas. And I just always, to me, that was Lee Van Cleef until I really got into the, the Westerns. I mean, like I said, I had seen him in, in a few of them, but I really... It wasn't until the master that he was like, okay, he's right up there with me, for me, with, you know, like Vincent Price and Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and Lee Van Cleef, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I'm guessing that uh, Shane Black was also a fan of that because the bad guy in Lethal Weapon was named Peter McAllister. That's right. Yeah, that must that must be. Jeez, uh... I forgot. I didn't even catch that. That's so funny. Yeah, so Lee Van Cleef, um, he just was born to play these roles. Then we've got, like we said, John Philip Law. The The movie was directed by Giulio Petroni. He's only got like 14 credits to his name, so this was probably his most famous film. But the writer, Luciano Vincenzoni, he wrote a lot of films, and in particular, in the year prior, 66, he wrote The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. So he knew what he was doing when it came to these movies. Yeah, and I will say, again, this being my my first introduction into uh, a spaghetti Western. It definitely had all of the, uh, the stuff that I was, that I expected to see, you know, like, you know, hotshot young kid, you know, like it's like, he's yeah. clearly very skilled, but like, there's an older guy that's you know definitely better than he is. And, you know, it's almost like trying to train him. Right. Because, like, he feels responsible for him. The trap door. Oh, my God. I loved the trap door. <laughs> that took me totally by surprise. I'd forgotten about that. I was like, because he's, what was it? Lee Van Cleef comes in and, um, who was it? He was, was it Walcott? Yes. Yeah. And he's like, Walcott, he's demanding his money. Walcott's like, all right, I'll, how about I'll give you $10,000 down? He's like, sure. And he goes, okay, have a seat. So he does. 
And instead of reaching into his drawer, he pulls a lever on his desk and the fucking floor opens up and Lee Van Cleef falls into a, into the basement. I was like, just, I was blown away by that. Yeah. Like I did not expect, I'm like, he's reaching for a gun. Like, you know, he's going to reach right. for a gun and Lee Van Cleef is going to put a bullet through his face and be like, man, now I, that's $30,000 I don't get. Like, you know, every time I want money from somebody. <laughs> and instead it was a goddamn trap door. It's like, you've got to be shitting me right now. Like trap door. Like, and the thing that I, I found the most irritating about that seat, it's like, this guy has been shown to be, like you said, like Batman throughout this entire movie. Right. And like, he falls for the trap door. <laughs> it's like, oh, come on. I know. I know. It's just too funny. I, I, it had to be they just wanted to just surprise the audience because I, I've never seen anything like that before. Oh, but it was so great. It was it was like so absurd and so out out there. But yeah. when it happens, you're just like, all right, that's the best. That's that's great. He just <laughs> oh, he, fucking trap door. Like <laughs> and like oh it God. wasn't it wasn't like. Like, man, I've got you now, Mr. Bond. Like, it right. was legit. Like, this was clearly a single-use thing. Like, right. you know, it's not like I hit a button and, like, you fell and, like, it just closed back up. It's like, no, there is going to be some serious contracting work that goes back into replacing <laughs> this floor and doing all this. Now he needs a new chair because the chair is broken. And then his goons just come and just pummel the shit out of him. <laughs> You know, Ryan walks in and, and uh, Walcott's like, oh, I get to use my trap door finally. <laughs> I know, right? It's like, oh, I've been waiting 15 years for this. <laughs> I think it was great. con right there. Uh, exactly. And that was a great bait and switch because Lee Van Cleef had already commented on the fact that, oh, these guys always hide the gun in the draw. And so it was something he, you know, that's the first thing he would go for is to know to grab the gun from the draw so right. that's what you thought he was doing and then boom he falls through the fucking trap door on the floor yeah which again like that that might have been my favorite part of the movie where it's just like oh that's crazy yeah <laughs> i did like so, the fact that everything kept going back and forth between ryan and bill like they kept helping each other yeah like i was like so before the uh the trap door scene you know when Kavanaugh hires uh Bill to kill Ryan and he sneaks up into his room he's like oh he's clearly hiding behind the uh yeah. the curtain cuz i can see his shoes it's like oh <laughs> really like that oh he's not behind the curtain they're never behind the curtain although i the guess old... in 67 that was you know, probably not as new. It's the old boots behind the curtain trick. <laughs> that was great too. That was just like you tell, and you could tell. I mean, someone like Bill probably would have fallen for that because he didn't do much beyond working on his ranch and learning how to shoot. Right, so, he didn't have any real world experience, which is why I think he was, uh, you know, younger rather than than older. Like I think he was in his early twenties. Right, yeah, that as makes sense. As opposed to you know mid mid to late twenties. Yeah, and it was it was just kind of funny. Did you find I I found through the movie and tell me if you agree with this? Waiting for Bill and Ryan to fucking team up and work together, 
And it was this constant back and forth where one steals the other's horse and, you know, constantly trying to one-up them. And I, I get the fact that, you know, Lee Van Cleef wanted to protect him and he just wanted to get his money and be on his way. But by the same token, it was just like, come on. When are these guys going to wise up and work together? Well, it's because, like, you know, I kept thinking that too. And I was like, all right, he clearly, like, they both think that their vengeance is more important than the other guys. Right. They were both, they were obviously were both very wronged and they were obviously both, uh, you know, deserving of their vengeance. Yeah, exactly. I thought it was funny when, uh, I think it was after Kavanaugh was killed and, and, um, uh, you know, Ryan's pissed that he that Bill killed Kavanaugh, so he takes his horse again, and he leaves it with an old guy with instructions to, that when Bill shows up, give him the horse and a kiss. And the, the old guy looks at him and goes, "Where do you want that kiss?" <laughs> yeah, I think I'll go without it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's the thing; like they constantly show Ryan being a step ahead of everyone at all times, but like he keeps getting caught in like the worst ways. Right. <laughs> Again, trap door. Sit right, right there where the X is painted. Because then they, they, um, what was it? It was Walker who, was it Walcott or Walker that had him in the, uh, put him through the trap door? Walcott. Okay. So then he, he, he does that to him. And then Walcott's like this local politician. And he's like, yeah, those suckers, they gave me a friggin' million dollars. They put it in the bank here to, you know, for public funds. So he gets all his men to steal the million bucks. And then they leave Lee Van Cleef behind alive so he can get blamed for it. Meanwhile, Walcott's still in town, you know, walking around. And I, I thought that was like, what a douche. <laughs> Yo, yeah, he's such a dick. He really is. It's like, oh yes, yeah, yeah, because he's the he's a banker. Yeah, like he's he's in a, a high up position, but you know he's probably uh, equal to like the sheriff or the mayor. You know, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Influence goes. Yeah, um, you know, because that's how it was back then. It's like, oh, I've got a million bucks. Like even at the beginning, when they're talking about they have two hundred thousand dollars, and it's like two hundred thousand dollars. You. Lee Van Cleef bought a horse for six dollars. Right. <laughs> what are you gonna buy? Like there isn't two hundred thousand dollars worth of stuff in Texas at this point. Right. <laughs> what are you gonna do with all that money? There's no point. I know, Doctor Evil. We don't have that kind of money in this year. <laughs> yeah. Right. Eleven gillion dollars. It's like what? <laughs> But what I liked was, though, um, they set up, I liked that they set this up where Lee Van Cleef's in jail and John Philip Law shows up and he attaches a chain to a train and puts the other end with a hook on the prison window. <laughs> so when the train leaves, it yanks the window and half the wall out. And I know. They managed like, to escape. Where is he? Where is he going to? Like, I saw the hook and I'm like, is he going to try to, like, pull this with a horse? Like, what? I thought that, too. Yeah. Like maybe you know a carriage or something. I'm like, because he's not hooking it to a, like a, a tow truck, like and driving away. Right. But yeah, the train that was a. I mean, excuse me. Uh, walk into a general store. Excuse me. Do you have a uh, a hooked chain that'll reach from the jail to uh, the train yard? Uh, we do. 
It's an odd request, <laughs> but we happen to have that. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. How much is it? Uh, $3. It's a mile of chain. Do you need help carrying it? Yeah. I'll, let me also buy a team of horses for $15. <laughs> oh, too funny. But you know what was really cool, too, though? To really show that Ryan was a tough guy is that he would shave with his Bowie knife and no shaving cream. He was a real man. <laughs> they showed him doing it twice. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's... That, to me, I think that's like a... To kind of show how regimented and fastidious he is. Although, I want to know, how did he shave in prison? Because I doubt they'd give him a Bowie knife. <laughs> that's a good point. And well, he was they like had a prison perfectly barber. clean-shaven with that... Uh, magnificent mustache. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, so, so then we get um, uh, Bill kills Paco. He's the the guy with the earring. Yep. Uh, but then, of course, he gets knocked out, and that I, of course, that was I, I was a point where I was yelling at the TV. When the hell are they going to get together? Because they keep getting knocked out or captured. Um, so they bring Paco's body back to his brother Pedro, who's the guy with the scar on his face, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, Paco was the earring and Pedro was the, the scar of the brother. And what they end up doing is they bury him, uh, Bill, up to his neck, sort of like we do with, with our kids at the beach. And I, I kind of yeah. half expected them to smear jelly on his face so the red ants would get him. <laughs> well, they did uh, cram his mouth full of salt. Yeah, that was awful. Like, it's like, oh, oh, yeah, like that's you know, just make him, like that's that's torturous. Yeah, that's because then he'll be, uh, like, his mouth will be so dry it'll be even worse if he's sitting in the sun all day. But at least they had the bowl of water, like you know, just out of reach. <laughs> but then of course Ryan shows up and he dispatches the bad guys, and I really, I really love the scene where the townsfolk realize. There are no more bad guys left here, and they all come out, and they get on their hands and knees, and they're trying to give him water and dig him out of there. That was a great scene, I thought. I thought it was funny when Ryan tried to pull him out by his head. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> Apparently, if you're buried like that, it's very difficult to get out. It's not as easy as you would think. See, I was looking at it, I was like, why doesn't he start by, like, moving his fingers, yes. you know, and, like, slowly crawl, but he had his hands tied behind his back. Oh, that's right. That's funny, because I was I thinking... I noticed the that thing. after they pulled him out. Yeah. But that was just a great scene. It was, like, it really showed you that uh, Ryan and Bill were the good guys, because the townsfolk, just the way they responded to that whole thing, that was, I just thought that was a cool scene. Yeah, it it uh, you know, and it definitely gave uh, Ryan uh, more depth of character because it's like you know his whole his whole thing was you know at first it's like I have to kill all these guys, but then it's like well as long as they're dead, like yeah, <laughs> you know, and I'm kind of a part of it, like yeah, I guess that's fine. But then it's like all right, well let's have a duel now, you know, and Bill's like well this is you know. And see, that's the other thing I, I realize as I'm looking at this, uh, you know, 
know, looking back at this um, synopsis that I read off of uh, off of Wikipedia, it says that uh, Bill only after giving a bullet to Ryan, he only had one bullet left, which is not true. Because Ryan asks him, how many bullets you got left? He says, three. And he gives one to Ryan, and he shoots the guy on the roof. So he's still got one left. He could still kill right. Ryan. Right. And he, but, but I thought he said he had none. After Ryan didn't shot. have any. Ryan didn't oh, have right. any. Oh, right, okay. Because he's like, oh, this time I'm out. That's right, that's right. Yeah, that was interesting. And and uh before that though, we had um once they get him Ryan I mean so once they get Bill out of the hole, they prep the town for battle. They get the women and children to safety, which I always love scenes like that. Like the even Lee Van Cleef was like, Do you have a safe place for the women and children to go? And and then um they shored up the place and then they get they hole up for the night and that's when uh, Ryan takes his shirt off and Bill sees the skull necklace and realizes that Oh shit! That's the guy that rescued me, and he was part of the gang all along. And so that's when it comes down to he's like, basically, Ryan says to him, "Well, why don't you kill me tomorrow? Because I don't think you're going to survive alone against those bad guys tonight." <laughs> yeah, that's basically like, yeah, just wait till tomorrow. Like, I'll I'll accept whatever justice, uh, but just just wait till tomorrow. Yeah, and he's like, all right. <laughs> well, back to sleep. Right. <laughs> like how he was able to get right back to sleep after like, oh, this is the guy that was here. Like everything else drove him over the edge. Right. This guy is like, well, nap time. <clears throat> <laughs> well, I think up to this point, uh, Ryan hasn't given him any cause to to think to fear for his life. If he had every opportunity to kill him, if he wanted to kill him. So he probably was confident in the fact that he was, you know, he was honest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he had been, you know, he had multiple chances to to kill him. You know, like in his, uh, you know, in the hotel room, in you know, a couple other times, like he had the opportunity to kill uh, kill Bill, but he he didn't. Right. Um, and I think he he was had the underlying guilt because, like we said before, the first place he goes when he gets out of jail is to the gravesite of the massacred family. So yeah, cause I, he didn't even yeah, because he says like, you know, I got there late and I wasn't a part of it, but I also couldn't put a stop to it either. Right. Yeah. So I thought that was just like spoke volumes for his character, but that end fight with the windstorm man that was really cool. Yeah, like the way they shot that and the way that you were still able to tell what was going on despite the fact that, you know, there's fire and, and you know, the windstorm and, like, all kinds of crazy shit happening. Like, you were still able to to see, um, you know, see the action clearly, you know, without 900 different cuts in every scene. Um, right. I think that's, like, a lost art now because you can't have... Like, if you watch one of these, like, Marvel scenes, you know, they've got all this money and everything that they're putting into it. Like, you know, one punch has three different cuts to it. It's, like, right. <laughs> so unnecessary. Like, you, lo- you lose track of the action. You don't know what's going on because there's just so many people fighting and so many things happening all at once. And, 
you know, with this, you were able to see what was going on there. There was some, you know, obvious, uh, obviously there's going to be some, uh, cannon fodder for lack of a better term running around, you know, with these different guys in the background, uh, yeah. don't serve any purpose other than, you know, to be bullet sponges. <laughs> there was a great shot where the, the guy, there's a bad guy and he's hiding around the corner and Lee Van Cleef is kind of pinned down. And John Philip Law comes up behind him and just pushes him out into the open and Cleef shoots him right in the chest. I also like the, uh, you know, sticking the hat on the uh, on the stick. Yeah. So the guy shoots the hat. <laughs> well, if, if the been... boots behind the curtain worked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would have been a great line of like, that was my best hat. And like, right. And yeah. shoots him. <laughs> but there was one thing I, you know, like I was saying before, I, I thought. John Philip's law acting John Philip Law's acting was a little bit wooden throughout the movie, although I think he played that on that way on purpose because at the end when um he has the opportunity now, all the bad guys are dead, he has the opportunity to, to kill Ryan and, you know, complete the mission. Kill all the bad guys. You can see the vengeance in his eyes. Like there's just a close up of his eyes and it I just thought it was an amazing piece of acting right there. Yeah, like that was something that he did a lot. And I think that uh, it actually reminded me of a lot of the scenes from Kill Bill when like, you know, you would have the two uh, two opposing sides, you know, see each other like you'd have the close up on the eyes, you know, yes. really expressing like, I see you, I recognize you now. Now it ends, you know, and obviously Tarantino is a huge western fan so oh yeah be surprised if this is something that he borrowed uh you know to pay homage i mean the guy did get ennio morricone his first uh his first and only oscar right although i think he got a <laughs> lifetime achievement award after that yeah that's true and you know i think tarantino borrows and, and adores both westerns and kung fu movies obviously. oh yeah yeah, I mean that's I mean Kill Bill like that's what it is. It's a it's a kung yeah. fu western. Right. <laughs> I mean half of it takes place in Texas. The, yeah, that's true. A lot of these movies um that were produced in Italy were shot in Spain because they had the expansive deserts that looked like the American West. But overall, I thought this this movie was great even though it was a shitty quality on uh on Prime, uh, there is a Blu-ray out there. I think people should pick that up. But so, so Pat, give us your final thoughts on uh, "Death Rides a Horse." I really liked it. Um, I kind of wish they had uh, stuck with the original title, which was going to be um, uh, "From Man to Man," right? Uh, which is the Italian title, or "Duel in the Wind," which I also like. Oh, um, that would have been a great title. I mean, Death Rides a Horse could go, you, that could literally be any Western. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I really like this, you know, uh, having never seen a Spaghetti Western before, or really any Western, I think the close, I mean, I've seen The Magnificent Seven, like the original uh, okay. and the remake. Um, but, and I guess to a lesser extent, Bone Tomahawk. Um, but I haven't really seen like a Western like this, you know, that was made in the sixties. Um, I really liked it. I thought it was uh, well done. I thought Lee Van Cleef was a phenomenal uh, character. 
in this in this film, and I really liked uh, uh, John Philip Law. Like I I liked I there was nothing about this I didn't like. You know, obviously the the quality wasn't as good, but I found that as the uh, movie progressed, I noticed it less and less because I was really yeah. into the story. Yeah, same here. Same here. Yeah, I agree. I think this was a really good movie. I really wish I had seen this in the theater when it came out. That would have been really a fun experience. Yeah, so I'm I'm excited. I'm glad you um I'm glad you liked this, and I'm glad you enjoyed the um, Invincible Shaolin. And uh, I think you're in for a treat, Pat. Moving forward, when we continue with this show, I think um, it's gonna you're gonna have fun with a lot of these movies that you've never seen before, and that's what we're trying to do for the audience too: is expose you to scenes to to films that you've never seen before, and maybe make you go out and watch them. So that's it. That's all the time we have for for today on the East meets the West. Pat, thank you so much for joining me, and look forward to seeing you again or hearing you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The East Meets the West. If you want to chime in about today's episode, please send us an email at theeastmeetsthewest42 at gmail.com. You can also check out our other podcast, Then Is Now, at havenpodcasts.com. All our podcasts can be found wherever you get your podcasts from, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and more. So check us out. Spread the word, and if you get a chance, go to those sites where you get your podcasts from and leave us a great review, and that'll help other people to find our shows. I'm Rigor, signing off for now. Join us again for the next episode of The East Meets the West. Thank you.